When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to Lies Agreed Upon, the podcast about Hollywood and history. I'm Leah Parody. And I'm Brian Krim. We've been talking about some pretty heavy stuff for the past few episodes. So today, Instead of returning once again to the Cold War realities of twisted politics, threats of mutually assured destruction, trauma on the home front, and McCarthyism, we're going to focus on teenagers. This episode and the next are going to look at a number of films that came out in the 1980s, a decade when Hollywood seemed to cater to teenage audiences like never before. So it makes sense that the geopolitical structure that shaped and influenced so much of global political action the Cold War, would show up in movies targeting teen audiences. As we've discussed elsewhere in this season, the Cold War was getting pretty hot in the 80s. Popular culture was preoccupied with the fear of increased belligerence between the U.S. and the USSR, still smarting from the embarrassment of the Iran hostage crisis, and increasingly concerned, again, about nuclear war. So what would happen if Reagan's rhetoric proved to be true. What if the evil empire really was an existential threat and America had to defend itself? Well, this this is where teenagers come in. In the broader media landscape, the question was being asked, could these post-Vietnam teenagers hack the reality of a conflict like their dads and granddads had to? So today, we'll be looking at two films about teenagers as soldiers. TAPS, released in 1981, and Red Dawn, released in 1984. In both cases, what we see is a conversation about American military culture and whether it can still be counted on when times get tough. And if it can't, if American youth actually reject it, is that a good thing or a bad thing? The first lie this week is that the U.S. in the 1980s had put the shame and disappointment of Vietnam, Watergate, the oil embargo, a recession, etc., etc., behind them, and that Americans were brimming with confidence and arrogance. Basically, what we want to stress this week is that events actually have a long half-life. Their legacies live on much longer than we might think. Yeah, I think it's telling that our our films come during the first Reagan administration, not the second. There's a, there's a real difference. And the next week, we'll, we'll talk about some films that come in that second administration period. Our second lie is that an era, any era, is defined by a single dominant cultural framework. The zeitgeist is militaristic or it's anti-war. The people are either self-sacrificing or conspicuously consuming. There are so many books about Hollywood's muscular masculinity in the 80s, a lot of you know, great film class stuff there. You know, Reaganism on steroids is kind of the theme, evidenced by Stallone, Schwarzenegger, you know, the usual suspects. But it wasn't that simple. And we hope that through the movies we choose, we're showing our listeners how popular culture is precisely where conflicting and opposing camps hash out competing ideas about what a society should value. It's not monolithic. Exactly. But we also need, in order for our audiences to sort of appreciate this, to provide first off some kind of high politics context for the teen culture movies we're going to be focused on for these episodes. In the early 1980s, the USSR was hemorrhaging money on the ill-fated war in Afghanistan. The solidarity movement in Poland was, embarrassingly, pitting union workers against a regime that was supposedly all about the welfare of the proletariat, 
shortages across Eastern Europe were common knowledge in the West. In other words, things were not looking good for the USSR. No, and in the West, on the other hand, the severe economic downturn of the 1970s, you know, when that term stagflation was coined, was coming to an end. But it took time. For example, in the summer of 1980, inflation in the U.S. was 14.5% and unemployment was 7.5%. The combined inflation and stagnation numbers came to be known as the misery index, and it was at its highest point, 20.5%, in 1980. But in the 1980 presidential campaign, Ronald Reagan promised he could turn all that around. It took years to get inflation under control, and the U.S. fell into another steep recession between 1980 and 1981. But Reagan implemented a combination of radical tax cuts and increased government spending in his first term. So Americans felt that the crisis was lifting, even though the newfound sense of affluence was really just being paid for by adding to the deficit. And of course, Reagan also had the good fortune to benefit from the intentional timing of the release of the U.S. embassy hostages in Tehran on the very first day of his first term. So there was generally a sense that a dark era of crisis and failure was now ending, and the U.S. was safe, strong, and affluent once again. And along with that, self-righteous. After the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan, the U.S. and allies boycotted the Olympics in Moscow in 1980. And then, after the obvious international crime of storming and occupying the U.S. embassy in Tehran, the U.S. and allies also made the new Islamic Republic of Iran a global pariah. And then, similarly, the Falklands War in 1982 was sold by Margaret Thatcher, a big ally and friend of Ronald Reagan and the U.S., as a clear-cut case of unprovoked invasion by an anti-democratic junta, which warranted a morally justified response by the still great British Navy. And then to cap all of this off, this was all covered on the newly created 24-hour news channel, CNN. Yes, and I can attest to someone who was becoming a teenager by around 1982 that I was totally fascinated by all of these things and followed every aspect of the Falklands War like, you know, a kind of militaristic preteen would because you're interested in all the stuff and you can hardly believe there's a conventional war going on in the 1980s. So I would say, all in all, the first half of the 1980s was an era of big rhetoric and righteous indignation in the West. But the saber-rattling of Reagan and Thatcher was also criticized, as we've discussed at length in other episodes. So were teenagers supposed to be rah-rah Americans, ready to go to war like their fathers and grandfathers did? Were we supposed to be worried that the youth these days were just too soft and wouldn't be able to defend the nation if called upon to do it? Or were we supposed to be continuing the 60s anti-war movement's rejection of the trappings and traditions of militarism? and continuing our questioning of morally questionable actions taken in the name of security. The Cold War was alive and well and in its fourth decade. So what should the next generation of almost adults be taught was their rightful role as citizen? Today, we're going to talk about two movies that answer that last question very differently. So it's recap time. Our first movie, Taps, was released in 1981, and it starred Timothy Hutton as the young Master Cadet Moreland, and George C. Scott as General Patton. I mean, I mean, General (laughs) Bashed, the headmaster of Bunker Hill Academy, a private military academy steeped in the rituals and traditions of Christian military idealism. It also stars Sean Penn in his very first movie role, as Moreland's best friend, Alex Dwyer, whose intellectual curiosity makes him less suited to the unquestioning idealism and obedience of the Bunker Hill culture. It also featured Ronnie Cox, Tom Cruise, Giancarlo Esposito, and Evan Handler. The film was directed by Howard Becker, who has an interesting filmography. He had just come off of directing The Onion Field in 1979, 
And then he later, later directed Malice, Sea of Love, and even a couple of Madonna videos. How, how very 1980s. Yeah, that's eclectic. Great cast. And we should note that we are going to see Timothy Hutton and Sean Penn again in our next episode, The Falcon and the Snowman. Taps is based on a 1979 novel by Devery Freeman. An interesting character, Freeman was a minor screenwriter, but was instrumental in the formation of the Writers Guild of America. And he actively and successfully engaged in union work in defiance of the House of Un-American Activities and the 1950s Red Scare. Yeah, I mean, we can definitely gather from Freeman's background, both his background and that the, the, we have the casting of George C. Scott very sort of ironically and intentionally as this, this uh, kind of old guard military guy when the, the role that George C. Scott was absolutely the most recognized for was for playing uh, General Patton. And so the combination of that casting and who Freeman was, it makes it fairly clear that the movie was intended as a critique of mindless obedience, militaristic masculinity, all of that package of stuff. But the thing is, is that for the first hour or so of the film, the viewer is really not quite sure how to feel about the bombastic but beloved General Batch who leads this community of boys and men, ranging from the age of about 12 to 18. And the plot is really simple. General Batch is told by the trustees of the academy that it will be sold in one year and the land turned into a condominium development. This already has the cadets in crisis mode, particularly the totally devoted new master cadet, the highest rank below the general, played by Hutton. But then an altercation with a bunch of townies ends in tragedy as the general accidentally shoots one of them. And at that point, because of that event, it's decided the academy is going to close immediately. That's right. And Moreland, Dwyer, and the even more gung-ho cadet Captain Sean, played by Cruz, and other leader cadets, played by Esposito and Handler, decide to refuse, take over the academy, and appropriate the massive arsenal that's been stored there for years, apparently, in the name of civil defense. General Batch has had a massive heart attack and is in critical condition. But Moreland imagines that the general would be proud and supportive of the military operation he sets in motion, with children on sentry duty carrying loaded rifles and snipers on the roof, keeping first the police and then the state national guard in their sights. The rhetoric that Moreland is guided by is unequivocal. The general made it very clear that he considered these boys soldiers in a long line of soldiers and that the fight to keep the academy open was an honorable one. Let's listen to how he sets out this fight for the fate of the academy. I stand here today with you and look out over these young men. <clears throat> And of course, I'm reminded of other commencement days and other young men, men of courage and conviction, men who have given everything. In Mexico, in the great catastrophe of the Civil War, in Flanders and the Argonne, in the jungles of the Philippines, and on Omaha Beach, in the snows of Bastogne, in the Mekong Delta, and at the siege of Quezon. How then can others say this land is for sale? It has been purchased and paid for with the blood of our graduates. I'm a veteran of many terrible battles, but no battle is more important than this one. And this final battle, I intend to win. We have a year. Entire wars have been won in less time. Men of the Corps, so long as breath and spirit remain, we must fight to preserve this academy so that Traditions that were born here may endure here. We must pledge ourselves to that mission. Eventually, Ronnie Cox arrives with the National Guard when a meeting between Moreland and some parents, including his own military father, fails to get results. The National Guard begins a psychological campaign, broadcasting parents' voices pleading with their sons to give up. This continues through the night 
and eventually one of the young boys on guard duty decides he wants out. But he trips and falls running towards the gate, and his rifle accidentally discharges. The National Guard open fire, and another young boy is killed. At this point, Moreland and Sean, Hutton and Cruz, still remain dedicated to the cause. Moreland, because of his twisted notion of honor and duty at any cost, and Sean, because he's a gun-crazy psychopath. But the movie increasingly is suggesting that these are two sides of the same coin. Dwyer, Sean Penn, and others are starting to doubt. Pressured by Cox to give permission to the boys to leave if they want to, half the students actually step forward and leave. This, and his best friend's criticism, along with news that the general has died, finally shakes Moreland's certainty. And this is further challenged by Ronnie Cox, another um, uh, more senior officer, so to speak, who makes it very clear to Moreland that the general's worldview is not one that is shared by him. Yes, General Batch's passing, it almost seems like, you know, the passing of an era here. Uh, and Moreland, you know, finally agrees to surrender and is leading the other boys to the front gates when Sean, the gun-crazy psychopath, opens fire from an upper window. He and Moreland are killed as the National Guard open fire again. The final scene has Dwyer crying over the bloody bodies of both young men. And the commentary is very clear here, that it is no longer right and good to mindlessly follow a code that devalues life in the name of honor. Taps is a clear rejection of that, but also of the trappings that suck people into that. A lot of time is spent in this movie on prayers and quasi-religious ceremonies and the fetish of uniforms, decorations, parades, salutes, tassels, berets, uh, shiny boots, and even shinier guns. The message is clear that these things have, for centuries, lured idealistic boys into a love of militarism, but like the candy cigarettes that were outlawed right around the time that this movie came out because they acculturated children to smoking, that similarly boys should no longer be indoctrinated into the culture of Christian militarism to make them more willing adult cannon fodder. Yes, and you have to also think that the fact that the military academy was going to become condos is another sign of you know the 1980s consumer culture taking over everything and maybe this this is an anachronism all along um but we should say you know in this moment when the film came out in 1981 america's attention had just been riveted for 444 days to another version of radicalized youth fired up by religious fervor taking possession of a compound certain that their cause is righteous, the Iran hostage crisis. The Muslim students following of the Imam's line, that was their official name, was the radical student group who stormed the U.S. Embassy in Tehran on November 1979. The hostages would only be released on January 20th, 1981, on Reagan's first day in office. So here's an excerpt from a British Thames television special on the crisis filmed in its early days, when the focus was very much on the students. And, and this is what we're wanting to, to have our listeners understand, that this moment, this idea of sort of radicalized youth taking possession of a campus, people who are sitting in the audience watching this movie make other connections in their heads because of what had just gone on uh, in Tehran. The thing is, is that after the turmoil of the 60s and the early 70s, the West was used to students being radically progressive. Here's where, here were students who, from the West's perception, were radically conservative. And that paradox, and it was certainly seen as a paradox in the West, really stymied the West's ability to grasp what was going on. So let's take a listen how... The um, the uh, host is kind of trying to 
to make all of this clear to his audience. From Tehran, here's how I find conditions in and around the embassy. In the name of God, the beneficent, the merciful, the hostages are in our hands and we protect them strongly. And we are ready so that in the case of any military intervention, we will destroy them. The embassy has become a revolutionary theater and the world's press are among the principal actors on the stage. Every day, reporters and cameramen assemble at the gates. Thousands of words are written, but facts about the hostages are few. It's become a propaganda war, and from time to time, the students lift the curtain of secrecy just a little to let their message get out. In a small courtyard on the edge of the compound, student leaders meet the press under the watchful eye of armed guards. The reporters want to know how the hostages are being treated. Instead, they get a lecture. The CIA had various agents as embassy personnel to each of whom a cover was assigned so that the true nature of his job would not be exposed. There are at least 400 students inside the embassy, but even after a month, no one can say who they are or who is really in control. Yes, and as the reporter says, the media was obsessed with trying to figure out who these students were and what motivated them. And it's kind of strange to listen to it now as we're recording this. And there's you know tens of thousands, potentially young Iranian women who are in a stage of revolt uh, at, at, at this very regime, which has now become kind of old and sodden. Uh, so it's interesting just to, to look back on it now. And so in TAPS, however, you know, which would have been optioned and filmed while this original crisis was going on, when Timothy Hutton is confronted first by parents and then by the head of the National Guard to prove that none of the students are being held hostage, that they are all there on their own free will and shared his zealotry, now we can really imagine that moviegoers would have drawn the parallel with Tehran pretty easily. So our next film is Red Dawn, and it, shall we say has a very different message. And the U.S. is a very different place in 1984 than it was in 1981. The shame of the hostage crisis, the national malaise that Carter truthfully named but then got in trouble for naming in the late 70s, had been replaced by this point with Reagan's Morning in America, The effects of those tax cuts and deficit spending had taken hold. And so people were feeling pretty good. And so we're going to play that ad, this political, very famous political ad, It's Morning in America. And we're going to include it on the website because uh, the visuals are also important. Uh, The America depicted in this ad is very close to the America we find ourselves in in the early scenes of Red Dawn. Other than in the first couple of shots of the ad, it's a suburban and rural America. And other than a brief glimpse of a couple of of kids, it's also a very white America. It's morning again in America. Today, more men and women will go to work than ever before in our country's history with interest rates at about half the record highs of 1980. Nearly 2,000 families today will buy new homes, more than at any time in the past four years. This afternoon, 6,500 young men and women will be married. And with inflation at less than half of what it was just four years ago, they can look forward with confidence to the future. It's morning again in America. And under the leadership of President Reagan, our country is prouder and stronger and better. Why would we ever want to return to where we were less than four short years ago? Why would we want to return to where we were four years ago? Now, this isn't just a question about inflation or interest rates. The implication is also that we would be returning to a feeling of failure and of vulnerability. Red Dawn takes that question of threat and the question of whether America's youth had gotten soft in an era with no war head on. It was directed and co-written by John Milius, who has the craziest resume. 
He was nominated for writing Apocalypse Now and wrote one of the, my favorite movies of that era, starring Candace Bergen and Sean Connery, The Wind and the Lion. But then he really shifted gears and made not only Red Dawn, but another film that can be read as an interesting Reagan Cold War, Cold War text, Conan the Barbarian. And we should add that who wrote Conan the Barbarian? None other than Oliver Stone. Quite a pairing there. Milius's production company is called Valkyrie Films, and obviously hearkening uh, back to his Apocalypse Now cred. He claimed he was blacklisted by Hollywood for being right-wing. And another interesting fact, Red Dawn was the first PG-13 movie. And I remember it very explicitly because I was excited that I could see it and not uh, have to have parents there. So, Yeah, I mean, I think that that... You know, it's it seems like just a random little factoid, but I think that that idea that in this era was also when that category of film was created. In other words, this category of film that you have to be 13 and it, it and then I think restricted movies, you had to be like 18. So there was this it was this explicit kind of description of a movie as intended for a teenager. Uh, that that really, you know, is what that PG-13, the meaning that was attached to it. And it was, you're right, it was very much, you're like, oh, this isn't a kid's film. I can watch this. That um, cachet to it, right? And of course, the cast is almost the entire roster of the teen stars of the day. We have Patrick Swayze, who, I mean, he's not a teen anymore, but uh, still. Uh, Charlie Sheen. C. Thomas Howell, Leah Thompson, and Jennifer Grey. And then there's also a few grown-ups, including the always fabulous Harry Dean Stanton and Powers Booth. Yeah, who could forget Harry Dean Stanton's Avenge Me? That's like the one of the war cries, other than, more famously, Wolverines. But we're going to talk at greater length in the next episode about what was unofficially called the Brat Pack. The cohort of young actors who starred in the veritable tsunami of movies catering to teens that came out during the 80s. So we won't get into it much here, except to point out that both Taps and Red Dawn are perfect examples of the darker, earlier teen ensemble movies that includes uh, Outsiders, Rumblefish, and Foxes. They were later replaced by something much more affluent, bubbly, and shiny, even when they were ostensibly serious. Yes, the sort of John Hughes era or John Hughes um, infused uh, uh, movies that came uh, along next. Uh, Red Dawn opens with the ominous writing, providing this this dire scenario that is completely implausible, but would most definitely have seemed totally reasonable in the paranoid fever dreams of uh, 80s hawks. It says, NATO disbands. The Green Party takes over in West Germany and demands all nukes be removed. Cuba and Nicaragua have one million soldiers activated. There's a communist revolution in Mexico. America stands alone. Yeah, I remember seeing it very in the theater and going, oh, that's kind of cool. You know, I always was attracted to the dire scenarios. But yeah, very implausible. The invasion is supposedly plausible because it's the commies from Cuba, Nicaragua, and Mexico who have invaded, not just the Russians. And the resistance that emerges is supposedly plausible because this is Calumet, Colorado, where young men play football and were taught how to shoot guns and go camping in the winter by their dads. And once again, the plot is fairly simple. One day... Out the window of their high school classroom, while being taught about, uh, was it Genghis Khan? It was is the it, Mongols, yes. Who is it? Genghis that Khan. There we go. So Genghis Khan, uh, obviously trying to um, foreshadow events. Outside the window of their classroom, students and their teacher see Soviet paratroopers landing in a field. <laughs> the paratroopers open fire indiscriminately killing people. And from that point, very quickly, we have the occupation of the town by a combination of Nicaraguan, Mexican, Cuban, and Russian forces. It, it happens very fast. 
In a great nod to the NRA crowd, we see a bumper sticker that reads, because this is that era when uh, Charlton Heston famously, uh, as the president of the NRA, says, you can have my gun when you pry it from my cold, dead hands. And so that's on a bumper sticker. And just then, a Russian paratrooper does just that, taking the gun out of the uh, hands of the truck owner's corpse. So a small group of boys grab supplies at this point and head for the hills in their pickup truck, led by the brothers, Jed, Patrick Swayze, and Matt, Charlie Sheen, and including C. Thomas Howell, who had actually just starred in Coppola's The Outsiders, in which he was Swayze's younger brother. But in this movie, Charlie Sheen is Swayze's younger brother. Yeah, and they, they pick up a bunch of other random kids, some of them who are made for this sort of rough outing they're about to have and others who clearly are not. And there's a commentary about that. Jed and Matt were raised severely by their father, Harry Dean Stanton. So they know survival and hunting skills. But the crew includes boys who don't. They had all been football players, the Wolverines, which is what they now call their unit, but they're not soldiers. And it's also a mix of boys who immediately accept that they must now become soldiers and those who can't ever quite grasp the reality of the situation. But as time goes on and civilians are put into re-education camps, uh, the boys find out that the people they know and love are being executed for resisting, including some of their own parents. And they realize that they all must become guerrilla fighters. They're also asked eventually to bring two teenage girls with them, granddaughters of the gun shop owner who had been, some, who had been supplying them with weapons. Leah Thompson, who had just made all the right moves with Tom Cruise the year earlier, is one of the girls. And she becomes a hardened soldier traumatized by the death of her family. She has one of the greatest stupid lines in the movie ever. After listening to basically it's Radio Free America, this kind of, you know, equivalent to the, you know, Radio Free Europe, et cetera, that had, you know, the BBC radio during World War II as well, sending out code that sends out coded messages to the resistance. And she's listening to this broadcast of these sort of coded messages And she looks off wistfully into the distance and says, things are different now. (laughs) You think? (laughs) The other girl is played by Jennifer Grey, uh, who uh, does not become a hardened (laughs) soldier, (laughs) nor does she have lines quite so stupid. And she, of course, will go on to star with Patrick Swayze in Dirty Dancing a few years later. So the the entire sort of we've got so much of this kind of incestuous casting in this decade of of all, all of these ensemble casts and all of these different movies that are all starring the same people. <laughs> yes, and there's a very memorable, funny scene in Ferris Bueller's Day Off where Jennifer Grey is in arrested and is sitting next to Charlie Sheen, who's also arrested. <laughs> yeah, I all love these that things. scene. They're all together. I love They're that all together. scene. It's yeah. hilarious. It is. It is, and it's hard not to think about it when you look back on on this cast. So an Air Force pilot, Tanner, who's played by Powers Booth, he also kind of was a a stock character in some of these sort of conservative movies, but he's shot down and rescued by the Wolverines. He's the one who fills them in on what's going on out there in the world. He tells them that DC has been destroyed by nukes and, you know, they, um, but they also, the Russians also nuked China, apparently. The film really is Reaganite's paranoid fantasy. Just the way the invasion happened is a racist, almost Turner Diaries scenario. Uh, and Powers Booth is describing it in this clip here to a you know awestruck group of young youngsters. First wave of the attack came in disguised as commercial charter flights, same way they did in Afghanistan in 80. Only they were crack airborne outfits. Now they took these passes in the Rockies. So that's what hit Calumet. I guess so. They coordinated with selective nuke strikes, and the missiles were a hell of a lot more accurate than we thought. They took out the silos here in the Dakotas. Filtrators came up illegal. 
from Mexico. Cubans, mostly. They managed to infiltrate the sack bases in the Midwest, several down in Texas, and wreaked a hell of a lot of havoc, I'm here to tell you. They opened up the door down here, and the whole Cuban and Nicaraguan armies come walking right through, roll right up here through the Great Plains. We held them at the Rockies and at the Mississippi. Lines have pretty much stabilized now. What about Europe? I guess they figured uh, twice in one century was enough. They're sitting this one out. All except England. They won't last very long. The Russians need to take us in one piece, and that's why they're here now. That's why they won't use nukes anymore, and we won't either, not on our own soil. Whole damn thing's pretty conventional now. Oh, yeah, we've got it all. Illegals, the Mexican border, weak Europeans. I guess the, the wild card in this scenario is China being on our side. But if you think about it, that's sort of a holdover of, of Nixon-era conservative thinking being vindicated, right? Um, remember that in the 1980s, China seemed to be opening up because it was taking on some capitalist free market uh, ideas. Now, under Tanner's leadership, they get even better at making life difficult for the occupying forces. There's disagreement also uh, between the Russian and Latin American leadership uh, about how to deal with this resistance, uh, with the Soviet general advocating for a brutal suppression of the insurgency and the Latin American general advocating that they try to, quote, win hearts and minds like he points out, like the Americans did in Vietnam. But in response to this, the Russian general basically just sort of laconically points out that the Americans lost that war. Yeah, I really like the character of uh, the, the Latin American general. I think he's Cuban. You don't, don't ever quite know because in the Milius world, it doesn't really matter. But he seems to both understand the Wolverines and also is the only one who can really kind of suppress them. And it's it's uh, he's a little more complicated than than the other like the Russian characters. I I, I think. Um, but by the end of the film, he definitely is. Yeah, he's 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 likable in his own way. By the end of the film, there is no resolution of the conflict. Uh, the victory is simply that two of the kids make it to the free America frontier. Swayze, uh, Sheen, Gray, Howell, and Powers Booth have all died for that cause. But there's kind of an ending where um, you know that we did eventually win because there's a monument to the to these kids, the Partisan Rock, as it's called. And and I think that though I think it's supposed to be. Um, uh, Leah Thompson going, you know, in the early days of World War III or something like that. So there is victory alluded to, but the film itself is kind of ends on a really dark, dour note in a way. Now, in 1984, in Canada, where I come from, I can tell you to love this film was very much a guilty pleasure or something that had to be done ironically, because it was seen as quintessentially rah-rah, Reaganite America. And uh, so I have to confess, I think I've only ever watched it once before I watched it for this podcast. Yes. And I think I have to admit to you that I have seen this probably a dozen times <laughs> because I am one of those American kids who grew up really fascinated with all this. And I don't think I got into the rah-rah Reaganite America thing. I don't even think I registered ideology here. I was just a newsy who was fascinated by the Cold War. And I kind of, you know, later watched it ironically. But <laughs> yeah, I can totally get how people in Canada would be like, you people are nuts. And and I'm just, I'm just you know, I'm fascinated. So yeah, I, I got into it in a childlike way, but not in an <laughs> ideological way. <laughs> well, to be fair to you, I think it also was a very much a guy thing. So I think it was easier to be sort of aloof and judgy as a, a, a girl, a, you know, a teenage girl, because the whole premise, you know, it doesn't matter that Jennifer <laughs> Gray and, no. and uh, Leah Thompson are in it or that, you know, 
Patrick Swayze is hunky or whatever. <laughs> I, I think it also didn't have the same kind of pull for for you know teenage girls as it did for teenage boys. Yeah, you're right. And there's yeah, there's not a not even a, a hint of sexuality in the entire film. Really, it's just it's like I said. There's a, there's a, actually a, a fairly high body count in this movie on the U.S. side, uh, and it's not just the usual token couple of deaths. And the desperation is also really interesting. The film starts out pretty lightweight, but the viewers have lulled into thinking this is going to be almost another Brat Pack movie of teenaged angst. But it gets more and more serious as it goes on. And the, the, yeah, the desperation, the, the total control over, of your wonderful suburban white American lifestyle is now in effect. And it's, uh, it really is kind of a, um, a very different film than the types of teenage films you'd see even just a couple of years later about serious subjects. And that's something we'll get into next, next episode too. And what's interesting is that this script started out as a small, like art house film. It was intended to be this sort of taut allegory about the tenacity of indigenous fighters against an invading force and about war corroding the psyche of young people and how it leaves no one in a community untraumatized. And, and in that context, you could see it being this sort of bringing home to America what the experiences were of all of those uh, uh, Central American uh, groups who were fighting, um, you know, dictatorships, or you know, some of the some of the the conflicts that we covered uh, in uh, you know last uh, uh, the last uh, season, um, because this was the era of many of those those conflicts in Nicaragua and uh, and elsewhere, but. Reagan's ex-Secretary of State, Alexander Haig, who was a hawk to say the least, was actually on the board at MGM when this script was optioned. Now, he had been a general prior to his short stint in Reagan's White House. In fact, he'd led NATO. And he also famously claimed that he was in charge after Reagan was shot and suggested that a, quote, nuclear warning shot in Europe might be useful to deter the Russians. Uh, so this is the, the you know, one of the people who's kind of weighing in on this movie when it was uh, still at the stage of being optioned. No, and, and that's why you cannot be surprised that Haig saw you know, uh, a different potential in the script than just a small art house film. And insisted that a new director, Milius, be brought in. Um, Haig, Haig also insisted that Milius work with the Hudson Institute to find a plausible scenario for an invasion of the U.S. And that's the Hudson Institute founded by Herman Kahn, who we talked about in our Mad Mad World episode as an inspiration for Dr. Strangelove. Um, in the end, the anti-war allegory turned into a big budget film that Milius claimed was an anti-war film but no one else seems to have had that in mind. Yeah. And that's why sort of earlier, uh, you know, a few minutes ago, we were saying this seemed very implausible to anybody who didn't, wasn't in these kind of fever dreams of the ultra hawks of this, you know, phase of the cold war. But of course that's exactly who Haig and the people at the Hudson Institute really at this time, you know, many of them were. And the National Review, uh, interestingly, ranks uh, Red Dawn as the, quote, 15th best conservative movie ever. Now, I, I'm really not quite sure what that's supposed to mean, um, but there you go. So it's obviously is very much identified in this way. Um, and the New York Times Review at the time stated, quote, to any sniveling lily livers who suppose that John Milius has already reached the pinnacle of movie-making machismo, a warning, Mr. Milius's Red Dawn is more rip-roaring than anything he has done before. Here is Mr. Milius at his most alarming, delivering a rootin' tootin' scenario for World War III. And, you know, 
in case you're not grasping it, I think this reviewer was very much, this is scathing and tongue in cheek, not intended to to be (laughs) complimentary. But what's also interesting is that this is kind of a testament to the box office power of Conan a year earlier and the Dirty Harry movies that Milius helped to write in the 70s. Because on average, if you go back and look at his filmography, he doesn't actually have a particularly reactionary or bellicose um, CV. Uh, But boy, when it is, it really is. Yeah, maybe you could just say he had a, a finger on the zeitgeist and any good Hollywood director should. So uh, maybe it's even more cynical than than just he actually believes a lot of these things. A little of both for him, I, I bet. Well, we said at the beginning that the, the basic premise was laughable, but why didn't it seem so to all those people eating it up in the theater? One reason was the cast, and the other reason was that the threat from communist Central America was a theme Reagan had been focused on even you know during his election. He even called a special session of Congress in 1983, the year before Red Dawn came out, and gave a speech about that very threat. Here's how he got Americans to seriously fear commies from below the border. A number of times in past years, members of Congress and a president have come together in meetings like this to resolve a crisis. I have asked for this meeting in the hope that we can prevent one. Too many have thought of Central America as just that place way down below Mexico that can't possibly constitute a threat to our well-being. Central America's problems do directly affect the security and the well-being of our own people. El Salvador is nearer to Texas than Texas is to Massachusetts. Nicaragua is just as close to Miami, San Antonio, San Diego, and Tucson as those cities are to Washington, where we're gathered tonight. Two-thirds of all our foreign trade and petroleum pass through the Panama Canal and the Caribbean. In a European crisis, at least half of our supplies for NATO would go through these areas by sea. It's well to remember that in early 1942, a handful of Hitler's submarines sank more tonnage there than in all of the Atlantic Ocean. And they did this without a single naval base anywhere in the area. And today the situation is different. Cuba is host to a Soviet combat brigade, a submarine base capable of servicing Soviet submarines and military air bases visited regularly by Soviet military aircraft. If the Nazis during World War II and the Soviets today could recognize the Caribbean and Central America as vital to our interest, shouldn't we also? So I guess Managua was also as close to Calumet, Colorado, as it was to Washington, D.C. And that's why Cuban paratroopers could land in the schoolyard. You know, it could happen. So let's return to our two lies for this episode. The first was that the optimism and arrogance of the 80s started right at the beginning of the decade and that a curtain was firmly drawn on all the trauma and pessimism of the previous 15 years or so. In TAPS, we see the tragedy of young boys who are sold a bill of goods, not only by the general they revered, but also by the parents who sent them to a military academy to begin with. It's a commentary on the past and a warning about the future, but there's a sense that little is offered as an alternative ideal to believe in. After all, the school isn't being closed so that it can become a cultural center or a Montessori. It's going to be condos. Exactly. And Red Dawn may be arrogant and bellicose, but it sure isn't optimistic. It's every fever dream Steve Bannon and Alex Jones have ever had. And I'm sure that there are preppers everywhere who have the Red Dawn DVD nearby for regular viewing and the inculcation of their own teenagers. Note, DVD, it would not be streaming because they're all off the grid. Yes, you can make fun of those people, but we should probably talk about the strange afterlife of Red Dawn, uh, the significance of the Wolverines. After all, we titled our episode Wolverines. Why? Because Red Dawn is strangely relevant today because of the invasion of Ukraine. Days after it began, and you started to see images of Russian armor, you know, destroyed at, at a dizzying rate, 
a lot of newscasts started showing burned out tanks and downed helicopters with Wolverine's graffiti scrawled all over them. It turns out that you know, mostly young men in Ukraine had also seen this movie and had be, had become a global phenomenon. And since they were actually fighting off a Russian invasion, they used um, the Wolverine's graffiti to make a point. Facebook started selling Wolverine's T-shirts with the distinctive blue and gold coloring. Um, and there's even a Western volunteer unit that's made up of, you know, British and Americans and whoever else fighting in the Ukraine and their names is Wolverines. So this isn't just a kind of cultural artifact from 1984. It's come back and, you know, to be really strangely relevant. Yeah. I mean, it does have a very long afterlife, but it is also really interesting how now <laughs> we would sort of turn the political meaning on its head in the sense of you know who's supporting Ukraine and who's supporting uh, who's supporting Putin in in all of this uh, ironic. And our second lie, uh, just to remind our our listeners, was that that an era in itself is all one thing or another. These two films show us that the early eighties was actually an era where questions about militarism and what we want to our youth to know, value, and be able to do was really totally up for debate. If the popularity of both of these movies is anything to go by, attitudes were fairly evenly split in the country in the early 1980s. TAPS did $36 million in domestic box office and red dawn did 38 million so virtually a wash and we'll see in our next episode a variety of ways that hollywood tried to insert itself into the debate about irresponsible teenagers above and beyond the question of military readiness we'll take a walk down memory lane and mtv and video games so dig out your leg warmers and your atari cartridges Lives Agreed Upon is written and produced by Brian Krim and Leah Parody. Our theme was written by Simon Parody. We are a proud partner of the New Books Network and can be found wherever you find your favorite podcasts. For transcripts and links to what you hear in each episode, as well as bonus content, visit our companion website, liesagreedupon.com. You can also find us on Facebook and on Twitter at lies underscore upon.